I don't normally lead off my scripture reading by telling you this, but uh, I don't recommend changing your eyeglass prescription the day before you preach. Uh, so it looks like there are three of each of you. Now, I don't know how that's physically possible, but it does. So pray for me that I don't trip too much up. We'll see. Uh, but our scripture reading, even if my eyesight fails, even if the sermon is bad, the text is good. And so we can rejoice in that. Uh, let's hear from God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, sometimes your word is very challenging to us. I feel that sense of challenge here today as the one who's opening and and reading your word. And so, first and foremost, would you help me to say true things that accurately reflect your word and your heart? Second, would you give your people your spirit so that they can not only hear and understand your word, but also so that they can obey your scriptural commands and live under your authority? Would you help us? We need your strength. We need your power. We need your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today's passage is is an interesting one to think about from the the preacher's perspective. It's only two verses, but it is a little tricky because on the one hand, I am tempted as I read these verses to read verses 1 and 2 but really start explaining the next text in verse 3. In fact, to be honest, that's what I did at first. At first I said, well, let's do verses 1 and 2, and then I'll just talk about the next verses. And um, one of the reasons for that is, is because Paul is talking about servants and masters. At least that's the ESV translation. I don't know. Some of you may have a, a translation that uses the word slave. But the word he uses here is the word doulos. And doulos generally translates as, as slave. Um, that actually uh, becomes challenging to speak about in the time and place that we live in because uh, I don't think this is controversial to say. We don't have slaves and masters today, certainly not in the West, certainly not in Beaverton, Oregon. Uh, Paul is writing in a different context than ours. Paul is writing in the context of Roman slavery, and we don't live in the context of Roman slavery. And so it's very easy and tempting to dismiss this command and just go to the next one and say, there's nothing here for us to see. Another reason why it's tempting to move quickly past these verses is because, well, to be honest, slavery is a tricky issue for Christians to deal with. Slavery exists in the Bible. Uh, It is a recognized reality that isn't directly abolished by the biblical authors. And for some, that means the temptation might be to just move quickly past it, right? Let's shuffle along. Uh, Nothing to see here. 
And yet, I, I think moving very quickly past this text would be a mistake. And as I was looking at the text, I increasingly thought that that was true. Um, right After all, this is in God's Word. Right? This, is, this is inspired Scripture. It's not a mistake that Paul decided to address this issue. It's not a mistake that this text of Scripture is, is in God's Word, and that 2,000 year, years later, it's still there for us to read. And so... Um, furthermore, I'm not convinced that it's totally irrelevant for Christians today. So because of that, I'm still left with this interesting question. How do you tackle this? And the best way I can think of it, and and I sort of scratched my head about this, is to just break from my three-point alliterating sermon format and and do something a little different this morning. And so what I want to do is just deal with the elephant in the room, deal with what the Bible says about the issue of slavery, And so you can see, if you look at the outline, it's just two completely unmatching, unalliterating, inelegant points in an outline. Uh, One of the ugliest sermon outlines I've ever written. I almost thought of not writing it down, but let's not do that. So let's deal with the issue of slavery. Let's just talk about it. Let's talk about what scripture says. Let's see what the word actually tells us. And then second, I want to go go ahead and show my hand here and tell you, I do think there is enduring value to this text. I do think there's enduring value to what's said here, because this passage, even if slavery is not legally sanctioned in the age in which we live, and certainly in the part of the globe in which we live, this passage pushes us to reflect on the relationship we have to those who are in positions of authority over us and how we should behave towards them. So we may not be slaves and we may not have masters, but we do have relationships with those that our our larger catechism calls superiors to us, people who are superiors to us. And so our our two points this morning have no ring, no alliteration. You've heard me apologize for it already. And actually, this always happens after I say there's no alliteration. Someone comes to me afterwards and says, I've got your alliteration. You should have come to me. (laughs) So... And I actually, I love hearing it because then I go, okay, I know there's always a way. So the first point this morning is just slavery. Let's talk about it. And then the second point is a reflection on the fifth commandment because I really think what Paul is doing here is he's taking the fifth commandment, which tells us that we ought to obey those in authority over us, and he's applying it to those who are in slavery. And so maybe we can't use it in application to slavery in our own day, but we can certainly apply the fifth commandment still. So let's reflect upon that. I think that's the, the best way to faithfully handle these two verses before us. And so, so first, let's talk about the issue of slavery. Paul is speaking of slaves here. He's giving instruction to Timothy, uh, a man who's pastoring a church, and he's telling him how should those who are slaves in this church in Ephesus, where Timothy is, how should they live? So the word he uses here is doulos. The word is the word for slave. It's, you know, in, in the American context, we would distinguish between someone who's a servant and a slave, right? You could be a servant and, a, and not a slave. Somebody is a servant, in, at least in our context, we would call somebody a servant if they're voluntarily serving, they're being paid for their work. It usually means someone who's living in a house of somebody who's taking care of them and somebody that they're looking after. And so if someone is forced to serve, and if somebody is not paid for what they're doing or they're drastically underpaid for what they're doing, then we would call that person a slave. 
And so the Romans didn't quite distinguish that way. If you were pledged to a master, it didn't really matter what caused you to be pledged to that person or how you got there. You were the doulos. You were the slave. And uh, many of our own thoughts about slavery in America are rooted in our own context. They're rooted in our own history. They, they're bound up in chattel slavery, which was the, the way that race-based uh, uh, race uh, slavery was practiced in the United States. And it was founded on the, the horrible injustice of man-stealing. Men and women in the American context were, were kidnapped from another land, put in chains, physically stolen, brought to America, subjugated, terrorized, forced to work for anyone who would pay for them. Everything about this was horrible. And, and even many Christians defended those practices, and they argued for racial superiority. Uh, and, and, and Scripture, of course, militates against this, but that didn't stop people from using the Scriptures to make their arguments. Um, much of the shame that America has to reckon with comes from the fact that Christian ministers tried to make biblically-based arguments that some human beings are better or more valuable or superior to others. And, and I, I should just make that very clear. This is a theological issue. This is, not, uh, this is not a political issue. This is a theological issue. It was a perversion and a twisting of Scripture that these sort of arguments were made to begin with. The Bible knows of no hierarchy of humanity. It knows of no man who stands over another. We ultimately all come from the same father and mother. Um, but that sort of race-based chattel slavery is what we think of when we think of slavery. Uh, it's our closest context, and it's still emotional uh, 150 years later. And so when we hear a word like slavery, it clouds a passage like the one before us, and actually, it helps you understand why the ESV translators may have chosen the more benign word, servant. You can imagine how that helps strip the passage of some of its weightiness, but at the same time, some of the baggage that comes with it. Now, in the Roman context, you could become a slave any number of ways that had nothing to do with race. Uh, most commonly, slaves were taken captive in war. Uh, the first Punic War resulted in 75,000 people being taken into slavery. Uh, in the Roman context, if you were born to uh, a slave, that also meant that you were a slave. Uh, but you could also become a slave voluntarily. Uh, a person who was in poverty, perhaps they could say, look, I'm having trouble supporting myself. I can't feed myself. I, I would rather become indentured to someone who would at least provide for me. Uh, or a person might become heavily indebted, and they might choose to go into slavery rather than prison. And so in the Roman context, slavery was not race-based. In Rome, anybody could be enslaved. Um, in the Roman context, slaves were a huge percentage of the population as well. So if you were to go through the entire Roman uh, population in some areas, you'd find out that 30% of the people were slaves. A third of the people walking the streets in some parts of the empire were slaves. Uh, they, did, they did everything. They, they served in all sorts of areas of public life. They oftentimes worked alongside ordinary employees, people who were paid. Uh, some of them were tutors. One of the great Stoic philosophers, Epictetus, was actually a slave, for example. One of my favorite, if, if I had to like a Stoic philosopher, Epictetus is, is the man. I love him. Um, the, the Roman Empire, as we know it, would not have existed if it were not for slavery. And that is not an argument for slavery, but here's what it does. It shows how dependent the Romans were 
on slavery in order just to function. Uh, it was a very ordinary part of life in Rome. Um, this is part of the reason why Paul addresses this issue, right? You don't talk about things in a pastoral letter that nobody's dealing with. And so Timothy needs direction from Paul. What am I supposed to say to the people in my congregation who are slaves? There are slaves in the church. There are slaves in the congregation. What's he supposed to tell them? So he addresses the issue of slavery here. He addresses slaves in 1 Corinthians. He addresses the whole book of Philemon to a situation where a Christian slave owner has a slave who became a Christian, and Paul is helping him to sort through what is our relationship like now that we are brothers in Christ. Can I still hold you as a slave? Well, we'll talk about Philemon in a moment. Uh, Here's the part where you might just be tempted to go, man... This is so corrupt. I don't even like thinking about this. I don't even like thinking about the idea of a Christian owning a slave. How could that even be something that's normal? Well, I I would remind you of something. Every generation has things that are normal problems that other generations couldn't imagine. Right? For example, I have been asked as a pastor enough times to count on both hands now in the last five years by church members or visitors here and in Mississippi, right, the, the, the quote-unquote Bible Belt, whether they should go to a friend or family member's gay wedding. Now, I've been asked that enough times that now I call it a normal problem in 2022. If you had gone to 40 AD Ephesus and you had let Paul overhear those conversations, Paul would have been like, what on earth are you talking about, Right? What are you talking about? What sort of degenerate society do you live in? That's normal there? You've been asked that enough times to count on two hands? What are you, what's going on there? And I think, here we are in 2022, and I think we think the same thing about Paul, right? What on earth are you talking about, Paul? Slaves regard your masters as worthy of all honor? No, escape your masters, overthrow your masters, run, and then masters, we would tell them, set them all free, right? That's what, that's what our impulse is. And it disturbs us that Paul doesn't do that. It's disturbing to us, I think. He doesn't just take that approach right away. And maybe, maybe it disturbs you that he doesn't. It's certainly counterintuitive to what I imagine a good pastor would say. It's significant that there seem to be enough slaves in the Ephesian church that Paul has to deal with this. So what does Paul do? He, he doesn't push for revolution, right? He doesn't say, kill your masters, rise up, end the institution of slavery. And instead, Paul looks at the, at the situation these brothers or sisters are in, and what does he do? He looks at their responsibility where they're at, right? They, they can't change their situation, but they can change their own attitude within that situation. They can change how they think and how they pray and, and how they live. And so he encourages godly living within the system of Roman slavery, and he he doesn't necessarily explicitly call for it to be overturned. We think that slavery demands revolution, and Paul doesn't call for revolution. Now, just so you know, people tried it. There There were attempts. There were revolutionaries who did try to abolish slavery by force. Uh, maybe you've heard of the story of Spartacus. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen the movie Uh, then you know the story of the biggest slave rebellion in Roman history. It was tried. 
Uh, they formed ent- entire armies that they brought against the Romans. And in the end, 6,000 slaves were crucified along Roman roads for everyone to see as all examples, as examples for all slaves everywhere. It's a horrible experience. Now, again, this is so hard for us to process. We know that you must not, we know that you cannot own a person. And, and Paul knew this as well. Uh, the Bible is crystal clear in Exodus 21, 16. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, right? So it's not just stealing the man, but it's having someone who is stolen. That is grounds to not only have them taken away, but, but it's grounds for you to be put to death. So you don't have to wonder why, why, uh, why this thing is so wicked. It's because it's embedded in God's word. It's there one chapter after the Ten Commandments. We don't have to wonder what God in his word says about this issue. And yet the Bible often has to deal with people where they are and not where they should be. Um, the Bible includes instructions on how to divorce somebody. God hates divorce, but he gives instructions on how to divorce. Why is that? Jesus answered that question before. He said, it is because of your hardness of heart that God gave those instructions. So he says, sin exists, and therefore, much of scriptural teaching talks about how to deal with or contain or constrain the sin that is happening rather than eradicating it. So, so the Bible is often idealistic, uh, not, is less idealistic, and it's more realistic. Um, it sets the standard. It gives directions on how to manage things in the in-between time while sin is still there. So Paul's approach to slavery, is, it's not revolutionary, right? His approach is not to condone it, but it's also not to overturn it. Instead, his method is to persuade on the individual level that persons free their slaves as they have opportunity. And I would present to you as evidence of that the book of Philemon. Because if you look at the book of Philemon, Paul is encouraging Philemon, the slave owner, to willingly set his brother Onesimus free, even though Onesimus is his slave. Listen to Paul's exact words. He says, I prefer that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So he's writing to him, and he wants him to willingly let Onesimus free. And he he is careful to tell him, I'm not commanding you to do it, but I want you to do it. And he gives reasons why. He says, this is a man who, if he is free, can bless the kingdom of God. He can bless me. He could serve. He could love the church. He could be so much more useful than serving you. And so that's the interesting thing, right? Paul He doesn't deal with slavery at the system level. He doesn't say, hey, we need to go talk to Caesar. He doesn't say, we need to go talk to those in authority. Instead, he approaches the issue at an individual, personal level. He deals with the heart of the individual who is participating in the injustice. He goes to the owner. He doesn't try to take the high-level system approach. That's one of the things we hear nowadays. So we have to deal with everything at the systemic level. But you look at this and what is Paul doing? Paul is focusing on the heart. Paul's focusing on the individual who perpetuates sin. And so if you try to go at the system, there's a problem. There's no heart to change. Systems don't have hearts. Governments don't have souls. So what do you do? You deal with the individual and you appeal 
to this person's moral sense and their obligation before God. And what happens is when you do that, there is an opportunity to see real heart and real life change. And by the way, this is also, this is the biblical approach to racism, right? You deal with it on an individual basis, not on a systems basis, right? Uh, Herman Bovink tells the story of how racism came to be. It's, a, it's entirely rooted in the fall. Listen to what he says. This is him writing 100 plus years ago. Race instinct, sense of nationality, enmity, hatred. These are the divisive forces between people. This is an astonishing punishment and a terrible judgment and cannot be undone by any cosmopolitanism or leagues of peace, by any universal language, nor by any world state or international culture. If ever there is to be unity among mankind again, it will not be achieved by any external, mechanical rallying around some tower of Babel or other, but by a development from within, a gathering of one, under one and the same head, by the peacemaking creation of all peoples into a new man, by regeneration and renewal through the Holy Spirit, and by the walking of all people in one and the same light. By the way, all he's doing is quoting scripture for the last sentence there. Hatred and division between people is not natural. It is not intrinsic to humanity. It is not a good thing. It's a, he says it's a punishment from God. He says it's a terrible, astonishing punishment from God that our hearts are like this. And so what is the solution that God gives? Is it directed to the system? No, he directs it to the individual. It's directed to the heart of the person. See, God works on the heart of the person who has racist feelings or prejudicial actions. He doesn't aim at the system above the individual because the system doesn't have a heart. A person has a heart. And so God aims at the heart. He appeals to the heart. He changes the heart of the person who's sinning by his racial prejudice. And, and Paul's approach is to deal with the individual rather than the system. Because eventually, this is the reality, if enough hearts are changed, then over time, there will be changes to the system. But the system change isn't the goal, and it's certainly not what Paul aims at. He's not aiming at changing the hearts of whole masses of groups, but rather the change that the Holy Spirit works in each person's heart, one person at a time. Now, in our, in our passage today, what Paul says is so brief, he speaks to those who are already slaves. Really, he speaks to Timothy, but he's speaking to them through Timothy. And, and, and he's, he's not writing to masters. He's writing to those who are slaves, and he's encouraging them to embrace what godly living looks like in their context. So what does he say? He says, if you are a slave living under a yoke, he says, you should honor your masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So he says that to honor God's name is, is, is he says that the, the, the honor of God's name is at stake if believers resist and disrespect their masters. Now, Paul seems to be saying this. He seems to be saying, this person is your master, so treat him with honor, the honor you're supposed to honor and authority with. He's your, he's your authority, so listen to him. Glorify God with your submission. Let people look at you and see your character and see that you have the renewed heart of somebody who is a saint of God. Now, here's what's challenging about this passage. There really is no fair analog in our modern day, certainly not in the West, not in any legally sanctioned way, that, that, that there's an analog to slavery, right? 
it's worth knowing there are forms of slavery that takes place even in the modern world. People who are kidnapped and used in horrifying trades around the world. It's a great evil. It goes without saying Christians should not be part of such wickedness, but even more so, we as Christians are right to encourage our own rulers to root out such forms of slavery, kidnapping, if it is discovered and known. But, but in general, slavery is not a current reality for us, right? The closest thing we have to a slave-master relationship is the employer-employee relationship. Um, and sometimes you joke, perhaps, that you feel like this is not voluntary. Uh, but the reality is, if your boss mistreats you and doesn't pay you enough, you can stop showing up to work and they won't arrest you. Um, there's no modern comparison. Nonetheless, let me try a bit of application here. Paul still says something about honoring someone that we owe our service to. He still talks about our heart attitude. He still talks about, especially when we serve those who are, who are believers, what our attitude should be towards someone who's a believer. And so because of that, I think Paul says something here that's not entirely irrelevant to us. And so that brings us to our second clumsy point this morning, fifth commandment. You know, I've sort of belabored the fact that Paul is speaking in the context of slavery here. I really feel like if I just let off and said, well, we don't have slaves today, but this is really about bosses and employees. I think that you would all say that's disingenuous. You just tried to whitewash something. You just tried to sweep something away that really is there. And so I've sort of belabored the fact that this is not exactly the same. But here is this is also true. I think it is the case that what Paul is saying does draw upon the contents of the fifth commandment. So rather than simply saying, well, we don't have slavery today, it's not in the law, therefore what he says has no relevance for us, I want us to think more about those who are in authority over us. So because of that, let's just think about the fifth commandment. Uh, If you were to go to Exodus 20.12, God says this, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. So it's a fairly simple command. It's one that I I quote twice, three times a day as we're getting ready for school. Just, it's all I, they think it's the only verse I know in the whole Bible. (laughs) It's a fairly simple command as, as far as the wording goes. Nobody has to, it has to say, oh, I don't understand this text. Even children don't say, I don't understand what that text could possibly mean. Nobody says that really. Um, and yet here's the reality, though. Christian commentators, since the beginning, have, have noted that this text has implications that are broader than just our duties to our literal, physical parents, right? And instead, the principle here is that we honor those who are in authority over us, which certainly includes our parents, but it isn't limited to our parents. Here's what the Bible does. Scripture begins with parents here because they set the most fundamental pattern of submission that there is to be seen. Right? The, 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 the obedience that you owe to your parents is the most direct form of obedience that you owe. Um, if you have a family with more than one child in it, you've probably had a situation where the oldest child tried to tell the youngest child what to do. Uh, and you may have even seen situations where they said, well, I'm going to spank you or mom and dad are going to spank you. And that's where you get to step in and say, let's talk about who the parent here is. Right? And you have that conversation precisely because they don't have that authority, even though they are older. Being older isn't enough, right? 
it is the, the parent relationship with the child that allows that sort of authority. And so scripture begins with parents because it's the most fundamental institution of submission that all of us learn. In this world, your parents are the first people that God intends for you to submit to. And in fact, they're, they're the ones that, that you're meant to learn how to submit to so that as you move further out into the world, as you have more relationships with more people, you've learned that practice at home. You've learned what submission looks like. And then when you go to work as an employee or you go to work as a citizen or as a church member, people see in your life that you have learned what it is to submit. And I would suggest, I think scripture is suggesting to us that home is where you learn that first. And so God is telling the Israelites in Exodus 20 that when they enter the land, they should be quick and ready to listen to those who are over them. Learn it from your parents first, but don't stop there. And so the, the idea here is that we have these other authorities over us. When the, when the Israelites go into the land, it's not like the rule is only listen to your parents, right? It's not like once your parents have passed away, well, all bets are off. Everybody's going to meet the real Adam. You know, that's, that's not the plan. Um, there are others in our lives that the larger catechism calls superiors. And the Israelites are supposed to listen to them too. And when the Bible says superiors and inferiors, it's not saying someone's better or someone's worse than you. It's talking in terms of authority. It's saying there are some people who have a higher authority that you have to answer to, that you have to respond to. And, and we still have superiors to this day. All of us do. Um, we, we all have parents. We came from somewhere, right? <laughs> we all have parents. Um, and perhaps you still live at home with your parents. If so, then you know what it is to have somebody that you have authority, that, owes, that, you owe author, uh, that, that has authority over you. Um, if you are still going to school, maybe you're a student, maybe you're in college or high school or grade school or preschool or kindergarten, if so, then you have those who are in authority over you. You have teachers. Um, you still have pastors and elders, right? I, I, I may be a pastor, but even I sit under the authority of the elders in our presbytery. We all have someone who's in authority over us. We have government officials. We have police. They are uh, accountable to courts and voters even. So, Everyone has somebody that they are accountable to. And of course, we have the one great superior, God himself. There is no one who is in authority over him. But we all live in a world that's structured by what could be termed superiors and inferiors. We all relate to someone else in some way. We have, we have people that we are over, people we have responsibility for, uh, who are responsible for us, who we answer to. And so part of the reason why it's necessary for Paul to say what he's saying here is this. And this is always true with biblical commands. The reason the command exists is because we resist it. Uh, we resist having anyone rule over us. And again, I go back to the most fundamental institution where we owe authority, and that's parenting and children. If there is a parent in this room who doesn't know what it is to have a child resist their authority, I want to pick your brain. I want to learn everything you know. Um, Human nature really resists the idea of authorities altogether. And it's not natural to us. Uh, we are uh, a nation that's born out of revolution. After all, it's in our DNA to resist. But it's also, it goes further back than just the American Revolution, right? It's not like that's where we learned it. Uh, we learned it in uh, Genesis chapter 3. 
And, and yet Paul says, obeying those in authority over us helps prevent the name of God and the teaching from being reviled. And so his point here is that when we resist, when we rebel against those that God has placed over us, he says it brings shame on the gospel. It brings shame on the gospel. Um, one of the points that the reformers made when they were explaining the commandments was that society crumbles if people don't obey the, those that God has placed over them. Um, this is one of those more fascinating things about watching downtown Portland over the last couple of years, that this sort of anarchist element that disdains and hates all authority and all government has, has really got this large, prominent presence. And, and I have to confess that I, this is going to sound like I'm getting political, but I'm not. Uh, I have to confess, I totally thought that the anarchists would let up when Joe Biden won the election. And I, that's just because I'm stupid and I'm naive. Super naive. I, I'm willingly naive. But I remember distinctly after the inauguration, I remember thinking that there were violent, I see seeing the violent protests and the violent demonstrations downtown. And I remember being very surprised because I was like, huh, I just thought they didn't like the last guy. And then there was one sign downtown. I remember seeing, I was watching some coverage of it, and there was somebody that had a sign. And the sign said this We are ungovernable. I remember being very struck when I saw that, right? That really stuck with me because for some, it's not about changing presidents. It's not about changing leaders. It's about eliminating authority in all its forms. Um, it's a complete abolition of the fifth commandment, essentially. A society that has rejected the obligation of inferiors to obey superiors is a society that's truly and, and genuinely ungovernable. But anarchy... Right? A society with no government, with no obligation to any of us, is a terrifying, awful place to be. It's not God's design. And the fifth commandment gives us God's own endorsement of that truth. He plans on us always having authorities over us. Right? The number of people who are fleeing downtown who don't want to go there in the wake of the ungovernables taking over is visible proof that this is not sustainable. And no one wants to live in that sort of world. By the way, I'm not talking about homelessness here. Just because someone's homeless doesn't make them an anarchist. But, but this is true in society. It's true in the workplace. It's true in the family. It's true in the church. Um, Justin Martyr, when he was arguing before the Romans that the Christian religion was true, one of his arguments was that Christians make the best citizens because we submit to those in authority. Christians weren't revolutionaries. He wanted to, to reassure the government of this. We were ordinary citizens. We were the governables. We have a fifth commandment. Right, we're the opposite of anarchists. We listen to the authorities as long as they don't put themselves in God's place. We are the governables. That's, that's what Paul is calling all of us to, right? And he says, by being governable, we're giving glory to God. And so that means that in your relationship with your employer, you should listen to them. You should serve them. You should be respectful. You shouldn't be sarcastic with them. You should show them honor. You should show them respect. And if you can't, then you should leave. I've had employers where uh, it was difficult to respect them, and so you find another job. Um, if you're a student, you listen to your teachers. You don't rebel against them. You don't talk badly about them. You, you respect them. Uh, children, obey your parents. That's, I know that's a hard one to understand. Let me explain it. If you are a child and you have parents, you should obey them. Uh, I'm still working on memorizing it. Um, 
don't strike your parents. Don't, don't argue with everything your parents say. Uh, don't fight your parents. Give God glory in how you obey. You, you, sometimes it's easy as a child to think, there's no way for me to do what the Bible says because all the stuff the preacher talks about is stuff I'm supposed to do out there. But no, I mean, even in your home, there is a way to show glory to God. You can obey your parents even if your heart's not in it sometimes. And then you can ask God to give you a heart that's in it. Um, church members, live in submission to your elders. Insofar as they govern you according to God's word, then give God glory. You give God glory every time that you obey and submit to them. Um, almost didn't say this one. I'm not on Mother's Day. Wives, sub- submit to your husbands in the Lord as your head. And in turn, your husbands are called to sacrificially give his life for you and sacrifice himself for you and submit to God for you. Even Jesus did this. Jesus lived this too. It's not like you think, oh, well, Jesus doesn't have to submit to anybody. Jesus did it. You know, in, the, in his earthly incarnate ministry, Jesus submitted. He submitted to his parents perfectly. He showed you what parental submission really looks like in his relationship with Joseph and Mary. Uh, he submitted to the authorities perfectly and absolutely. He showed us what it looks like to submit to authorities. And by the way, sometimes that means talking back. Um, He honored Caesar as far as he was able. In his human nature, he submitted to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. See, here's what I want you to see as we go this morning. I want you to see, I want you to believe, I want you to rejoice in this, that Jesus submitted. Jesus didn't rebel. Um, And if there was anybody in the whole world that could have led a rebellion, it would have been Jesus. Jesus lived and he served and he respected those who were over him. And he did it for us. He did it for our sakes. So how can we be so selfish? How can we think, I'm better than Jesus. I can think of a situation where I should rebel, even though Jesus didn't. Right? Even Jesus doesn't do that, even though he, of all people, is the one who probably could have. And the answer is, we have to submit because we aren't better than Jesus. We aren't superior. He is our superior. And even he submitted. He is our savior. He submitted himself to the father. He submitted himself even to the point of death for our sakes. So that we could not only know forgiveness, but so that we could walk in freedom from sin. And and it's promised to us in this world that if we put our trust in him, we'll never be put to shame. Our Lord Jesus calls us to live in submission. And as we so often see, he doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't himself done first. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you grant us your Holy Spirit that whatever our situation, wherever we find ourselves, that we would give you glory even by submitting in difficult situations where we instinctively resist authorities in our lives, whoever they may be. Give us a deep inner willingness to bow the knee to you, and to all others that we find ourselves living under. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.